This podcast is brought to you by Pastor Stormy Swan and Faith Christian Family Church of Lubbock, Texas. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com. Praise the Lord, you made it. It's Sunday morning and you're in church. Praise the Lord. That's a big deal to God even. You know, that's why the Lord said, don't forsake the assembling together that we're to honor him on the Sabbath. So I welcome all of you. Once again, our goal here is to give you the opportunity to experience God, to connect with God, and maybe you already have through praise and worship. If not, I believe the scriptures today will speak to your heart, and then at the end, give you an opportunity to respond at the altars. But you're here for a a specific reason. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Once you get a Bible, go with me to the book of Matthew. Now, we have been talking about the fast, and we're down to the last week, and you know, maybe some of you have already quit fasting. Maybe you never have. But you can do something this last week. And so as you're turning to Matthew 6, every one of us, we have things that clash for the throne of our heart. And the things that clash for the throne of our heart can be success. They can be achievement. They can be food. They can be sex. The God of pleasure. But if I'm not very careful that those things can actually become my God. And one of the ways we find out what is really my God, what's priority in my life is this right here. What do you pursue the hardest in your life? What is the driving force in your life? Proverbs twenty nine seventeen says that a, a man's heart reveals who he is. And so the issue of the heart is the heart of the issue. And it's very hard for us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus when Jesus isn't on our, on our throne, that something else is God in my life. So we're going to look at it a little slant, a little differently today. Let's begin in Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, your giving before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, the New Living says, do not do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. So the goal can't be to please people and get the applause from people. The goal is, man, I want to do things as unto the Lord. Now the same, same chapter, verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the street. Why? That they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. Now, right here, guys, Jesus is not criticizing public prayer. That's not what he's doing there. But he is criticizing prayer that it tries to attract attention to myself. In other words, when I want everybody to know, man, I'm such a great giver. I'm such a great person of prayer. He doesn't end there, verse 16, same chapter. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, and they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So advertising fasting is another example of of merely external. And Jesus said the goal in every one of these, whether it's fasting, praying, or giving, it's not to parade myself around to get the applause of mankind. It's to say, Father God, I want to draw near to you. I I want to do it as unto the Lord. Now turn a couple pages to your right to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. 
And when you get here, you'll find out this passage is red letter word, so it's Jesus talking again. We'll begin in Matthew 23, verse 25. It says here, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. One translation for woe says, what sorrows await you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion, greed, and self-indulgence. So he's saying here, you clean the inside, or you clean the outside, but on the inside, your heart is far from God. Your heart is corrupt. Verse 26, blind Pharisees first, first. Now, I like the word first there. First cleanse the outside of the cup, or first cleanse the inside of the cup, and dish that the outside then may be clean also. So I personally believe when he starts talking about this, that When you get Jesus on the inside of you, he'll start cleaning you up on the inside and it will begin to reflect on the outside of us. Too many times we have this thought, I'm going to clean my life up and then I'm going to come to the Lord. Well, we got it backwards. You give your heart to Jesus and all of a sudden something on the inside will start working on the outside and there'll be a huge change in your life. But it begins on the inside. He goes on to say, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, when you see the word whitewashed tombs, in the Jewish culture, that was a very strong language. Why? We'll keep reading here with me. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear or look beautiful outwardly, but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. And so why it was so strong there, the whitewashed tombs, served to identify a, a gravesite that was defiled. So for them to go and touch that, it was a bad, bad thing. And so literally he's saying here, stay away from it, because on the outside it may look good, but on the inside they were morally defiled. Now he ends in verse 28 and he said, Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outwardly you appeared to be righteous. Everybody thought you were spiritual. You knew how to talk in Christianese. But inwardly, he's saying, you're morally defiled. Now, it's very easy for us as human beings to bluff or or make people think we're very spiritual. But understand this, God knows. He sees everything. And so when I do it as unto the Lord, there's got to be a change in my heart. There's something that comes from my heart. Now, go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is a passage of scripture here that is referencing the Israelites. And what goes on in this passage, it shows their spiritual immaturity and their lack of self-control or they were led by self-indulgence. And so in this passage here, the Apostle Paul is going to use their mistakes to teach me and you. So we begin 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, fellow believers, I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to forget. Now watch all the times he uses the word all here. That all our fathers were under the cloud. 
All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. All ate the spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. Now the reason I highlight the word all there is they all had the same opportunities. They all came under the same temptations. They all had the same uh, uh, things to eat. They all saw the same cloud. They all passed through the same river or the ocean or the Red Sea. But they didn't get it. Keep reading with me. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now as these become our examples, the new living say these become our warnings. And what's going to happen right here is history is going to illustrate what happens to human beings who get caught up in self-indulgence. Now watch what takes place here. Now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The word lust there means that, that they crave. And it said they craved evil things. Now, what's interesting about this passage right here, that it's cross-referenced into the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 4. If you were to read that verse right now, the thing that they were craving, the thing that they lusted after, was meat. I don't know if it was a steak. I don't know if it was a lamb chop. I don't know. Well, I know the Jews didn't eat pigs, so it wasn't Porky the pig. But it was some form of meat. Now, it's interesting here that the Apostle Paul would say they lusted after evil things, but yet it was food. Now, what happens to us here that when we have such a lust in us and I don't get it, I become agitated. I begin to whine. Now, I wouldn't become agitated and I wouldn't whine if that thing didn't have power or influence over my life. But see, this is what he's talking about here. Now, watch where he goes with this, verse 7. And do not become idolaters. Now, if I went around here and just spotted people one after other and said, what's an idol to you? Most of us in this room would say an idol to me would be a carved image or something like that. But literally, the word idol means to substitute something for God. Now, in verse 19 of this same chapter, it says, anything can be a God. So he goes on to say here, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. So right here, the apostle Paul was saying that they're eating. They're drinking, and pleasure had become their God. And it's interesting that he would begin to say this pertaining to pleasure, pertaining to drinking, and pertaining to food. But food had been a stumbling block for a long time to humanity. Actually, if we went all the way into the beginning of time in Genesis 3 with a man named Adam and Eve, the enticement to sin, the downfall of humanity was for food. Remember, God said, don't eat from that tree. And then if we jump to Genesis 25, two brothers, one named Esau and another named Jacob. Esau sold his birthright for a morsel of food. 
And so we see that food has been a downfall to mankind for many, 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 many years. And that's why the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 4, 4, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, we can be malnourished on the word, but overfed on the world. Very easy. I'm not saying we're not to eat. I'm not saying we're not to drink. I'm not saying we're not have to, to, to entertain, to have pleasure. But when those start becoming the God of my life, when that starts controlling me, when that starts dictating how I live, then there's an issue with it. Now, if I went around this room, every one of us in here, we would probably have different favorite restaurants. And I could ask you, what's your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite food? Well, one of the favorite restaurants that me and Shelly go to, and they don't have one here, but we love the Cheesecake Factory. I shouldn't say we love it. We really do like it. And we have our favorites. Oh, there's things that we really, really like. Actually, on the way, we usually know what we're going to get. But if you've ever been there or to your favorite restaurant, when the hostess goes to take you in and you start going by other people's tables, you start looking at what they're eating. And then when you sit down, your conversation is, did you see what they had? And literally, it becomes a a food taste bud paradise or taste bud fantasy land where you're like, oh my gosh. Now, it's interesting how we as human beings, we like to describe food. Angel food cake. That pie, it's to die for. Death by chocolate. How about this? That is good, good soul food. Oh, it's good for the soul. There's nothing wrong with me eating. And there's nothing wrong with me eating at the Cheesecake Factory. The problem, however, is whether it's food, drink, or entertainment, that we look to it to satisfy us when only God can satisfy And so literally what he's trying to tell us, we can make this where food, drink, and even pleasure becomes the God of my life. Where I become dominated by it. One of the reasons we fast and we pray is to say, you know what, Lord, number one, I don't want to be dominated by anything but the Lord. And also, I believe it strengthens our faith. It causes us to have a, a, a fresh faith. I don't fast to wear skinny jeans, okay? It's not why I fast. I fast to get closer to God. Now, in this passage here, look at some of the other things that the Apostle Paul highlights that can become idols in our life. Verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality. Well, people say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, we keep reading. And some of them did. And one day, 23,000 of them fell. What's sexual immorality, pastor? If you're not married, you're probably in sexual immorality if you're doing things you shouldn't. But it's not only that. Even though you may be married, you may lust in an area of sex. And he said right here, you don't want to do that. Keep reading verse 9. Lord, let us tempt Christ or test Christ as some of them also tested and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complain. And when they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now here's your great thought. Many times the things that we complain about. 
They reveal in our life what's really important to us. What are you complaining about? See, if we go back and we look at the Israelites, you know what they complained about the most? Food and drink. Now, to help you just a little bit more about ways that we can look at idols to feel something in our, in our lives that only God can, watch this video. I was watching TV the other day, and the show comes on with these religious fanatics. They're crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't know anything about their culture or their religion. You see, the thing is, they were worshipers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't relate, do you? Let's try that again. I was watching TV the other day, and the show comes on with these religious fanatics. They're crazy. You see, the thing is, they were worshippers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Oh, that hurt, Pastor. Say amen or amen. Oh, oh me. So, Pastor, you saying God hates football? No, God really enjoys football. I believe he'll watch the Super Bowl. But what happens when it begins to dominate and control me? Even to the point where I say, you know what? I got the NFL ticket. I'm not going to go to church today. See, every one of us can have things in our life that start trying to dominate us. And even though they may not be bad things, but when they start substituting what God's supposed to be in my life, I start getting in trouble. Now look at this a little farther. Go with me to Matthew 24. Back to close to where we were. Matthew 24, and again, history, guys, will illustrate the danger of self-indulgence in any area of my life. When I start becoming dominated by stuff, whether that's food or drink, and it was 35, 40 years ago that I was dominated by drink in my own life, where I, I was controlled by a thing called alcohol, and it dictated what I did every day. But I'm going to tell you right now, even as we sang today, God will break every chain. Walls can come down. I'm telling you, even addictions in that area, God is good. And he'll set you free in that stuff. And some people say, oh, he wouldn't do that for me. Oh, yes, he will. He still does that with people. Now, watch what takes place here. Matthew 24, begin with me in verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, what he's talking about here is the second coming of Jesus. 
And he's saying, no one knows the day or no one knows the hour. You know, there'll always be people that'll try to say, I know, you don't know. They don't know. And so I believe personally this is what's going to happen, that the Bible's very clear right now that Jesus himself seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me and you. And the day will come when Father God will look at the Lord and Savior Jesus and say, enough's enough. It's time for you to go back for my chosen. It's time for you to get up and go. And that's what's going to happen. And Jesus is going to come in. There'll be a sound of the trumpet. He's going to be on a white horse. And oh, happy day. It's going to be a great day. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were also, so also will the, son, the coming of the Son of Man be. How was it in the days of Noah? Because he said the way it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be for me and you. Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So in Noah's days, they were dominated by eating and drinking and marrying. So are those things bad? No, they're not bad. But listen to the way it says in another translation. I believe this will help us. Banquets and parties and weddings. Banquets, parties, and weddings. So the second coming of Jesus will be marked number one by a society that's indulged in food and drink. Number two, it's a society that operates on drunkenness. And three, the cares of this world. Now, this was a warning here. He's saying, this is how it's going to be. Now, look at what his advice is on the next verse. And they did not know until the flood came, and they took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man, it'll be. Now, I can go back and I can study when the Lord flooded the earth because of mankind's sin and their wickedness. And I don't know how many people were there on the face of the earth but I do know because of the Bible how many people made it. Eight. Noah, his wife, his three sons, Curly, Moe, and Mary. No, no, no. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. Eight of them made it. The Lord told Moses, or Noah, I mean, he said, warn them for 120 years. It's very similar in our society. Every one of us in this room have heard this statement. The Lord's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. I believe that. Me personally, and I don't know the day or the hour, but the Lord gives us signs that things will begin to take place. I personally believe we're in the last of the last days. And interesting enough, if we would turn over one chapter to Matthew 25, in that passage, the Lord Jesus talks about ten virgins. Five of them made it and five of them didn't. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. They all had the same opportunities, but some of them didn't heed it. And I believe in this passage here, even the Lord Jesus is saying, listen guys, you, you got to raise your standard. God's not about Christians that straddle the fence. I'm wise or a saint on Sunday, but I'm foolish and I'm a sinner on Monday. It's coming back to this to say, listen guys, 
I want you to be committed, totally committed and fully committed. And this is a warning, and he ends here, and I'm going to skip down to verse 44. He says, therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so oftentimes, we're so dominated by the things of the world that we push the things of God on the back burner, and we'll say, you know what, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. What if it does? Am I ready? Now, I got one more passage I got to show you to tie this together about why we're talking about fasting. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And as you're turning there, I believe this with all my heart that one of the things the fast does for anyone who will do it, it'll help us to get our priorities in order. What's really, really important? You know, you think about this. 20 years from now, who will really care who wins the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks? Actually, is there anybody in the room right now that can tell me who won the Super Bowl 20 years ago this year? <laughs> Doesn't matter, does it? Cowboys, that's a step of faith. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> That is calling those things that be not as though they are. See, I'm just sure. <laughs> we can laugh in church. It's okay. I'm just showing you there's so many things we do in life that at the moment they seem so important. But when you go on through life, you realize it's not so important. There are a lot of bigger things. And, you know, a few weeks ago I, I spoke at a, a father-daughter little breakfast and I said to the ones there about my own daughter, my greatest joys in my children isn't that she ran Division I cross, cross country and track, saved me a lot of money. My, my greatest joys isn't that she has a master's degree. My, my greatest joy isn't the accomplishments that my children have on this earth. My greatest joy is at 55. And some of you say, man, Pastor, you look great for 55. My greatest joy is my children serve God. My greatest joy is that my, my grandkids will spend eternity with me in heaven. And I think that's the focus to say, Lord, I got some things in my life I need to get right now. We begin 2 Chronicles verse 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Boy, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Thirty twelve 12 years old in the room. <laughs> he was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So this guy named Manasseh becomes king at 12. He reigns for 55 years. In the lineage of the kings of Judah... There were 20 kings. This guy named Manasseh is number 14. Out of all 20 kings, it said that he was the worst of all of them. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if I was to define what's worst, how would that look? He did bad with his foreign policy. Or... Unemployment rates were crazy high. Interest rates were really bad. 
No. No, to define worst is how I must look at it in Father God's eyes. And the way Father God looks at every one of us is, how well do we obey Him? Do I live for Him with all my heart, my soul? Do I cause other people to stumble? Do I cause other people to sin? And P.S. Hashtag. We have an election this year. At the end of this year, we'll have an election. And a lot of people in our society for the last 30, 40 years, we vote on stuff like this. What will my president do for me? What will my president give me? What is going to happen with unemployment with this president? I'm not saying those things aren't important, but where we've missed it is we've quit electing people that will stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. I'm a man or a woman of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And some of us better get a hold of this because our nation has vastly become a cesspool. But I believe this, guys. If we'll hunger and pray and seek God, God will change things. But I can't vote for him just because this guy is going to promise me this or that. Begin to listen and begin to pray. And you know what? It's the people of God. We need to pray that God will raise up a modern day Moses. And that was free. Verse 3. For Manasseh he rebuilt. He reintroduced the high places. The pagan shrines. Which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the bells. And he made wooden images. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. And he served them. The king of Judah. He makes these carved images and he starts worshiping him. Idols. Verse 4. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. Of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. And he also caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted medium and mediums and spirits. You know what this guy literally did? He was into witchcraft. He was into fortune telling. He was into seances. He consulted spirits of the underworld, meaning devils and demons. Look at the end of verse 6. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set carved image, the idol which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. This guy's, his life right here, guys, was a catalog of evil deeds. He was an idol worshiper. He sacrificed his sons in the fire. Can you imagine that? That's a crazy devil right there that would tell me and you to get our children and offer them into the fire. And not only that, he desecrated the house of God. To be exact, you know what he did? He brought sexual images into the temple. Verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Now when I read that verse, I, I have to think about this. 
What do you think Father God was saying? How did this make Father God feel? His children, his chosen. And in that same limelight, how does he, he feel when he sees us do the things we do? Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't heed. They wouldn't obey. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Syria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, do you think this is really what God wanted to do to him? No. But when we don't listen to God, we open ourselves up to things that aren't bad. And literally what this meant is these Assyrians would take these big hooks and they would hook them in their nose. And then they would fill them with chains and they would lead them around like an animal. And then they would, they would put fetters and, and chains around their legs and their ankles. This is how bad the things in Manasseh's life had got. You know what I truly believe though? It's the love of God. That God loved him so much that God said, I don't want you to stay the way you are. Because if you stay the way you are, you'll spend eternity in hell. Now watch what happens. Oh, it starts getting good. Verse 12. Now when he, Manasseh, was in affliction, he was in deep distress, his life was bad, he implored the Lord his God. The word implored there literally means he begins to seek God. He's in such a bad state in his life, he says, i got to seek the Lord. And then it says, and he humbled himself greatly. He didn't humble himself a little bit. He humbled himself greatly before the Lord his fathers. The word humble there, it cross-references into 2 Chronicles 7, 14, which says, when my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, I'll heal their land. And so now this ungodly king, he begins to seek God. And not only does he seek God, he humbles himself. And almost always in the Old Testament when they humble themselves, it referenced three things. Number one, they repented. I'm not talking about, oh Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, off to the races. It was sorrowful. It was on their knees and they cried out. Number two, they would pray and they would fast. Now if you look at the end of verse 12, it said, he humbled himself greatly before who? Before the God of his fathers. Manasseh's father was a man named Hezekiah. In Genesis 29, it says this about Hezekiah. Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So it shows me right here that this guy named Manasseh, he was raised in a godly home. But just because I'm raised in a godly home doesn't mean life's just going to fall open for me. Everything's just going to be easy. i got to keep seeking God because you know what? In heaven, there won't be grandchildren. There'll only be children. You're not going to get in by what your mommy and daddy did. That i got to learn to stand myself. So he begins to seek God, the same God that his father Hezekiah did. Verse 13. And Manasseh prayed to God. Now get this. And he, God, 
received his entreaty. God heard his prayers. And he heard his supplication. And God brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God, the Lord alone is God, that God was in control. Now I knew, you, you, you know this through the scriptures, that God knew he wasn't bluffing. God knew that it wasn't a game. You know, we can pull things over on each one of us, like I said earlier. We can come in here and talk in Christianese. Oh, bless you, Father. Glory to God. And our hearts can be so hard. But you're not going to pull nothing over on God. And so this shows me right here that when this guy named Manasseh, this ungodly king, humbled himself and went before Father God. You know what Father God did? He said, I'm going to forgive you. And not only going to forgive you, I'm going to touch you. And I'm going to restore you. Let me ask you this right now, pertaining to verse 11. What's got its hook in your nose? What's dragging you around and dominating you? What's got you bound in shackles and, and, and fetters and chains in your life? See, every one of us in this room, just as Manasseh had idols in his life, we can have things in our life that can keep us from God. And the one thing that stands between me and you and the forgiveness of God and the restoration of God is to humble ourselves and say, all right, Father God. Part of that, I believe, is not only to, to repent, but it is to fast and to pray. And when I fast and pray, chains are broken. Walls will come down. Thank you for listening today. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com.